Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24 as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah and really a follow-up to last week's sermons. This is why I have part two written down. It's uh, a bit, I think that Isaiah 24 is one big idea, but it was just too much for one week. And so I thought we'd break it up. And so that's what we did. So we'll be looking at 17 through 23 this morning. Before we go to his word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have sang and heard this morning that you are the word, you are the glory of heaven, you are the one who is near us, and we pray that you would be near us even right now. As we open your word, help us to come to it humbly, not as ones who think we know everything or we deserve to know everything, but simply as ones who are students of your word, who want to see your glory, who want to see your name be praised, and to see your name be glorified in this earth. And so we pray toward that end, that you would instruct us, that you would mold our hearts, that you would convict us of our sin, and that you would lead us to your truth. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So last week I began uh, by talking about this potato that a student brought to me. If you remember the shriveled up potato that I had on the windowsill for the whole year, and it had some horns growing out of it. So this year, I took the potato, I kind of started feeling bad for it, and I put it in some dirt and some water and see what would happen, and things happened. It sprouted up, like uh, probably had 30 different shoots going straight up to the sun, well, or towards the top of my room. And they were growing towards the window, actually. They started to move. Uh, they would they would kind of bend towards the sun, which is what plants do. And so I would turn the thing around so that they would bend back the other way. And it was interesting to watch them do that over the course of several weeks. And I had to put them in a bigger pot because it's gotten so big and it's just a lot of fun. So in our text today, we're going to be finishing that idea from Isaiah 24 with the judgment of the whole world. And what does the judgment of the whole world have to do with the potato? Well... This time, the end of time is put into view, and we're going to see a picture of our Lord Jesus and His resurrection glory. With the last week, there were pictures of death and destruction. We talked about as long as we keep the end in focus, we'll be able to understand more fully what is going on with that judgment. It's a judgment that is fully deserved, and in the end, there is glory that is fully deserved. Is for the sun. In many ways, we're going to see in our text today kind of the bookends of Scripture. We'll see creation, and we'll see the very end where it's just Christ standing there with his remnant. And again, the center idea of this whole thing is Jesus Christ. For the believer, it's very easy to live as if there is no end, or as if the end is the only thing. The end isn't good, and so we have to worry about it constantly. 
The way this can manifest itself in the life of believers, a few ways, and we're going to go over those as usual. The gospel is at stake. And what we believe or don't believe about the work of Jesus Christ defines who we are as individual believers and defines who we are as a church. And so it's very important that we get that right. And so we'll look at this text today with two main ideas. Number one, the earth in submission. And number two, the true Son of God. And so with that, let's look at the text, Isaiah 24, starting at verse 17. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Verse 17 of Isaiah 24. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven. In heaven and of the kings of earth and on earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, and they will shut up, and they will be shut up in, in a prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just real quick, a few important reminders from last week we first, when we looked at the first part of this passage. Isaiah has begun this portion of his book. Verses or chapters 24 through 27 or so, and they deal with these the end times, as in the end of history. We've been looking at the end of countries and nations and empires. This is the end of everything. He's writing in an apocalyptic style, and we talked about how that word apocalypse means an unveiling. And so, what we see is that the Lord is unveiling to us the things that are going to be going on. He's doing so through the prophet Isaiah obviously through the work of His Holy Spirit. These aren't things that will only come to pass if we don't behave. We don't have a set of conditions here in front of us that if we don't do this, then He's going to do that. No. These are things that are coming to pass. Our behavior is actually the source of the judgment on earth. Man has been sinful since the fall. The earth has been under that same curse the entire time because of this there is a kind of cleansing that must take place that is taking place in our passage today man is removed except for a remnant of a few and the earth is being destroyed like a piece of metal must be destroyed in order to remove its impurities one thing that I left off the table last week concerning this idea of the remnant and I kind of wanted to talk about today and maybe opening up a giant can here but that's okay we can talk about that during Sunday school notice that the remnant those who are praising the Lord those who are seen praising giving holy giving praise to his holy name they're the ones that are left behind 
not the other way around. We see this in the passage, the wicked being taken away, the remnant of God being left on earth. It's because the intent of God is to redeem both his remnant and his creation. He intends for the redeemed people of God to live in the new heavens and on the new earth. Unfortunately, the church is bought into the idea that we're going to be whisked away on this final day or sometime before even. And I think that has caused us ultimately to have a very low view of creation, sadly, and even a low view of the lost world that we live in. We're just waiting for that day that we'll disappear and we'll leave behind a neatly, a neatly folded pile of clothes. It's not what the Lord intends to happen. The Lord intends to redeem His creation. It's not something He's going to throw away. He is going to have to cleanse it. And that's going to be a tough time, as we've seen. But in the end, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, just like we as redeemed people are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There will be a garden city in that new heavens and new earth. And at the center of it will be the tree of life, just like it was there in the Garden of Eden. And so I think this passage, as much as any passage in Scripture, actually spells that out for us. We'll see that as we go through. And so with, the, with that, the first point, the earth in submission. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon, upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. It's a pretty terrifying scene, if you think about it. Reminds me of kind of an old horror movie where the person is running from the bad guy and, you know, they keep tripping over different stuff and the bad guy seems to be closing in on them. They can't escape. They escape from one thing. They get caught in another. They shut themselves in a closet as if that's the safest place. They're trying to escape from the bad guy, but they're only ever making it worse for themselves. Of course, the major difference between that scene that I just painted for you and what we have here before us is the Lord is the good guy. And he's chasing down the bad guys who can't find escape for what they've done and the punishment that they deserve. It will be like that on the last day. There were many who claim that since God is love, that on the last day, he's really just going to relent and allow everyone into heaven. That, you know, all the things that he said over and over in Scripture, he's really just kind of been leading us down the path. And really what he intends to do is just make sure everybody gets there. All that law stuff is really unimportant. You can really just do whatever you want. The Lord's still going to let you come in because God is love, right? Yes, He is love. He so loved the world that He sent His Son that whosoever believes in Him can have everlasting life. We all know that. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We know that verse 2, John 3.35. What about those who don't believe? Jesus wasn't done when He said... Whoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life. He actually said something right after that in John 3.35. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God shall remain on him. Right here in Isaiah 24, we see that. That's Jesus talking too. Jesus is supposedly the one that separates the bad guy God in the Old Testament from the good guy God is love God in the New Testament. This was Jesus here in Isaiah 24. He was right there. He was in agreement with God the Father, God the Spirit. All of them in agreement. They are the same. Jesus, God the Son, represents the intentions of the triune God perfectly here. There will be no escape for those who don't believe, for those who do not obey. Let's make sure that we understand that. 
Continuing in verse 18, we see words that are very reminiscent of those that we see in the book of Genesis. For the windows of heaven are opened. The foundations of the earth tremble. The last time we saw the windows of heaven open up, water came forth and there was a flood upon the earth which represented God's wrath. Obviously, we don't have a flood happening here in Isaiah 24 because God said he wouldn't do that. But he didn't say that he wouldn't judge the earth again. Uh, so we, uh, this definitely should have caught the, the, the eye of the Hebrew reader. Judgment is going to be like that judgment that's found in Noah's flood. How many were left of the face of the earth? Eight. And so it's going to be very much like that day. Verse 19, the earth is utterly broken, probably due to the foundations trembling. In verse 18, there are several places in Scripture, actually, where we read that the end of the earth is going to be accompanied with very large earthquakes. We don't want to get crazy here or anything. I get the idea that these aren't the kind of earthquakes that affect a particular area. You know, I grew up just a few miles south of New Madrid, Missouri. I'm well aware of faults. This isn't that kind of fault. This is the kind of earthquake that shakes the entire globe. How do you know? Well, the earth is split apart. The earth is shaken violently. The earth staggers like a drunken man. These are words that tend to suggest that the entire earth is going to be affected by this. It has to be big. The shaking and violence has this major effect of the earth that causes it to stumble around. Or to another picture there is the sways like a hut. You get the idea of a shack kind of swaying in the wind, staggering around a bit, and then finally falling down, being out for the count. It's kind of the last death throes of the earth itself as it's being cleansed of the sin of man, the curse of the fall. Like all creation, the earth must suffer this as well. It must die. It cannot last forever. It will not. Anyone who's relying on creation somehow to be that bedrock, literally, it's even, even thinking that they can somehow rely on the earth. It's just like relying on a drunken man for support. It would just cause him to stumble over faster. It's not going to help. Verses 21 and 22. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven. In heaven and the kings of the earth and on the earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. So here are all the evildoers. We have the kings of the earth and the hosts of heaven all represented here. And obviously this I think this represents the fullness of people that are going to be imprisoned. What does that mean? This is including the hosts of Satan and Satan himself even being thrown into prison. The language here doesn't allow for the idea of their prison term to be a short one. It kind of encompasses on that day... And after many days, you get the idea that this is going to be a long prison term. Their punishment after the prison term, but the prison term itself is a punishment. On that day, the Lord will punish. Again, matches after many days, they will be punished. We get the idea that this is just an ongoing punishment. The imprisonment and the punishment are in one. The best picture of this, I think, is from the book of Revelation where the eternal place of torment is referred to as a lake of fire. 
I've heard several atheists in my day refer to hell as something that they can't wait to visit. You know, I've shared the gospel with them, and they finally just become upset, and they want to be like, well, I just can't wait to get there if it's a real place, because it'll be a party, and all the coolest people are going to be there. There's going to be nothing cool in hell. It's called a lake of fire. Um, and they'll have an eternity to consider why they ever thought it might be. It's not going to be a good place at all. And it's a, as we read here from 21 and 22, it's going to be some place where they are eternally punished and eternally shut up in their prison. There's a lot for us here today. First and foremost, I think for the unbeliever, you need to hear this. There is no escape that verse 17 and the beginning of 18 is pretty frightful. If you consider the Lord of creation chasing you down, there is no escape from Him. Life is but a short breath and it's over. Eternity is not. It's forever. The Lord will punish for eternity the one who does not believe in Him. Scripture says it. If that's you, if you are disobedient, as Jesus said, and you are in your unbelief, Call upon His name and be saved. That's the only... That's it. There's no other refuge. Relying on anything else is not safe. His plan is to save all those who are His. And all those who are His hear His voice and respond to His voice. And His voice is telling you right now, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Believe that He rose from the dead. For the believer, we have to be careful with texts like this because I think they can scare us or cause us to think highly of ourselves. They kind of have these opposite ends of the spectrum, which I think believers are constantly swaying between in all things that we do. First, we must not look at this passage and think that the Lord will be chasing us down in those last hours. That's important. If you go back to verses 14 through 16, you see a host of people singing. They're singing praises to the Lord, even in the midst of this judgment. They're the ones that were left, and they are singing praises. As believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be in that number. And it won't be because we've done something to deserve it. Make sure we understand that. It'll be because... Jesus did something to deserve it. And He said, these are mine. They're now covered with my righteousness. He should be the only one standing in the end. But we'll be standing there with Him because of what He did. So when you ever feel like as a believer, when you read passages like this and you allow them to scare you, or you feel like, woe is me, I'm a horrible worm of a person, I'm the lowest of low, my sin is too great to bear, and so forth. Remember the cross of Christ. His sacrifice is why Isaiah was able to write about it, and about them able, and he able to write about people still being there, singing the praises of God after God swept through the earth in judgment. So when it comes to our sin, let's start making much of it. It's a habit for many believers, I think especially reformed believers talk about their sin more than they talk about Jesus. It's not impressive. Talk about Jesus. Leave your sin on the cross of Christ where it was forgiven where He said it is finished. 
All of that said, that's one end of the spectrum. We also have to be careful that we don't look at the lost world, the dying creation, and think thoughts like, well, I'm just passing through, so I don't care what happens to this place. Do you know one of the reasons that non-believers don't like Christians? It's that kind of attitude, by the way. At the heart of that attitude lies a heart that truly believes that it deserves to be among the beloved because it's something that he or she did and those people didn't do. It's a prideful heart. Many people cover up their pride with false humility, which is what we just talked about. Or they spiritualize everything. The world doesn't need Christians who behave as bad hotel guests who trash the room and steal the pillows. That's not what we need. It needs people who love the creation, who love the people in it. Even when they don't believe things that we do, we still love them. We should always preach Christ and Him crucified. Don't hear me saying that we should at all shrink back from that. But we should continue to offer the gospel whenever we have the opportunity, absolutely. And we should work for the glory of God on this earth, really up to our dying breath. We should continue to do that thing. It's okay to long for our eternal home. Absolutely, we should. We, we do. We long for our eternal home. We long for that place of rest. Absolutely. But it's not okay to, be, to behave as if we don't have work to do before we get there. So let's make sure we do that, brothers and sisters. And that brings me to the next point, the true Son of God. Look with me at, verses tw- at verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before the elders. This picture immediately makes me think of the the opening days of creation, even the opening day of creation, where God spoke and there was light. And later on, He made things that actually put out light. Now, it wasn't that there wasn't light before, and that he, light actually was turned on when the sun came out. No, there was light before. And then he decided to make the sun later to be a light by day and the moon by night. I've had several science types over the years say things like to me like, well, how is there light if there's no sun? You know, as if they're going to confound me with one of the Bible's truest conundrums. Well, they've probably never read Isaiah 24, 23, where on the day of the Lord, when he judges the earth, the sun and the moon will be confounded and ashamed on that day. Why? Because there's a greater light that's going to be there. The true light of the world will be on full splendor and glory and full display for all to see. That's why there on day one of creation... When he, Jesus Christ, said, let there be light, there was light. There doesn't need to be any other light other than the one that he emits to show his glory. If we need further convincing of that, let's go to Isaiah's favorite book, Revelation. So let's go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Looking at verses 22 through 27. And this is the, this whole idea here is the new heavens and the new earth, the city of God being on full display, 
And this is a, the final description of that city, verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for, the, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's almost as if John and Isaiah collaborated on this work. These are the same last days that are being pictured here. When there's a new heaven, a new earth, a city of the redeemed of God, there will be no need for a source of light any longer. The sun will stand down. The moon will stand down because the Lamb of God is the light of the world. Isaiah saw this day and he was thrilled about it. In fact, as we talked last week, he was waiting to open the door for God to come in, even in his own day. Yet he was called home before Jesus came. But he saw Jesus' day, and he was glad, just like all the saints of the Old Testament. Church, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we look for other things to light our path? Just like my shriveled potato, once it got some water and some nutrients, it was able to see the sun, and it's just taken off. It has just sprung new life into it. As believers, we must keep our eyes on the Son, Jesus Christ, if we want to grow in grace. Every single secondary source of light will be confounded and ashamed. We must look to the true Son of God, the light of the world. We must trust in Him to keep His promises. We must trust that He's one day going to bring us home. Absolutely He will because He says He will. In those last days, the celebration will be about how God judged His enemies and His righteousness will show forth on the entire earth. We just sang that in the sands of time. His righteousness is there on full display. However, it will also be about how He showed mercy to the redeemed. How the grace of God the Father was shown to His people in the sacrifice of His Son. We'll always be reminded of that, in fact, that it was Jesus' sacrifice as to why we are there. We stand not upon our own merit, even where glory is. Even in heaven, we don't stand upon our own merit. We'll be reminded of that as we'll look and see the scars of Jesus for all eternity. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. So in conclusion, let us be a people who focus on Christ, not on our own sin, not on our own perceived goodness, and let us be a people who love the world and the people in it so that we could point them to the true Son of God, the light of the world. Let's go to Him in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to You, we recognize that You are the true light of the world, yet we are constantly trying to find it under rocks and under everything else 
under the lowest parts of the earth. We are trying to find light. When it is shining all around us, and by it we see all other things. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to look upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.